Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. This morning's reading is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, and reading from verse 31. This can be found on page 1007 of the Pew Bibles. Matthew 26, verse 31. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. All the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away and a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. 
While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Peter. And please do keep um, your Bibles open <clears throat> if you've got them there in Matthew chapter 26. Which lane do I want to be in? Which lane do I want to be in? Which, which group of people should I join along with? I wonder whether you've asked yourself that or some similar question this week. Perhaps you've been at the supermarket till and you've wondered, you know, which, which lane? Um, <clears throat> perhaps you queued for that seat. Which, which lane do I get in to get the best seat in the auditorium? It was a traffic jam inside or outside, to beat the average flow of the cars. You know, some of the arenas in which we choose which lane are not particularly important, are they? But sometimes they can be quite significant. It's the teenager on day one of the new school. Which group of people am I going to be friends with? It's the professional working out which partnership or which organization, which firm they're going to give the best of their working years to. It's the political party you choose to support. It's the causes you identify with. And actually, it comes in with questions of faith as well. Which lane is best? Which, which church should I join? Which particular preacher should I listen to? Which authors should I read? Which networks should I look to for uh, influence? Which lane is best? Who do I go with? Well, that's the question I want you to just keep in mind as we come to this third in our sermon series, looking at the final chapters of Matthew's Gospel. This series gives us a chance to go slowly through the final few hours of Jesus' life up to his death and resurrection 
as we go through Lent, building up to Easter. And if we'd been reading the whole of Matthew's Gospel by now, by chapter 26, we would have a really strong sense of how Jesus has so far discredited the religious authorities of his time. You don't want to be in their lane, he's been saying. You don't want to be with these guys. That's been his message. You see, what, I know what they're really like, says Jesus. They're not for you, these religious leaders. So don't go with them. It begs the question, pretty obviously, well, who should we go with? Uh, perhaps Jesus' people, right? Presumably the men and women who learned from him, who, who spent so much time with Jesus, they will lead much better. They're going to be different from the ones before, right? Well, interestingly, not quite. Not quite. One of, for me, one of the astonishing things about the New Testament, and I find this such an encouragement to my faith, is how it doesn't attempt to sell the credentials of the disciples. Not least without saying something much, much bigger in, in the first instance that bypasses them entirely. You see, those disciples, those followers of Jesus, they don't come out of Jesus' ministry looking that good. In fact, the disciples who either wrote the Gospels or supplied the material for it, so they could have swung the story whichever way they wanted, right? Those guys have given us a story that, first of all, disqualifies and humiliates them. In fact, it does so almost as much as their greatest enemies. So last week, I don't know whether you were here, um, do catch up uh, if you missed it. We finished with the traitor, Judas, slipping out into the night. I don't want to go with him, obviously. But then you read on today, and the others don't do much better. There's astonishing sort of final words of that little um, excerpt that Peter read, verse 56. All the disciples left him and fled. Not such a great band to join him with either. And by the end of the gospel... Therefore, you get to a, a sort of surprising sense. It's not so much, look, the baddie leaders failed, but good thing is there's some good ones. Basically everyone, every human breaks. Everyone, that is, except one. And the opening of our passage just so vividly sets up that contrast. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 31. Jesus told them, this very night you will all, he's talking to the disciples, <clears throat> You will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's taking these words from the Old Testament book of Zechariah and he's using it deliberately to explain what's going, he's going on. He's saying everyone else, including the disciples, they're all going to fall away, they're going to be scattered because God is going to strike the shepherd. Singular. There's only one shepherd, one person worthy of the title of the keeper of God's flock. And that's Jesus. But then, Jesus alone is going to come out winning. Verse 32. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So Jesus is going to, after this, pioneer the route forward. But the point is this. There's only one you really want to go after. There's only one who is utterly true. There's only one who really sees and knows what he's doing. There's only one who really delivers. There's only one who actually has genuine saving power. There's only one. And no one else is like him. Jesus. 
And I'm hoping that this morning we're just going to have a chance to be drawn afresh to, to, to believe that and to throw our lot in with him wholeheartedly, if you like. Grow in our complete dependence on him. Four characteristics, I think, that, that sort of jump out from this passage, each of which are unique to Jesus. He's uniquely faithful, watchful, suffering, and powerful. Let's see each of those in turn. First, we find Jesus is faithful like no one else. He's faithful like no one else. He predicts the disciples are all going to fall away. The disciples obviously can't quite believe that it's going to be that bad. So uh, verse 33, Peter replies, look, even if all fall away uh, on, on account of you, I never will. Now, we all know this story, right? Uh, and it's easy to jump into that kind of slightly um, patronizing good old Peter mode as a Christian, bless him for all his enthusiasm. And we sort of slightly sidestep the point here. Because this this is a there but for the grace of God go I moment. Because it doesn't seem right, does it? Everyone desert Jesus. Jesus, surely not. Could anyone have deserved it less? Someone's going to stand with him, aren't they? Might we not have stood there with, with the same righteous indignation? Look, oh, Jesus, I, I will stick with you. And at least Peter, to his great credit, he shares something of Jesus' desire to be faithful. He, he wants to be true. He wants to stand up for what's right. But only Jesus will actually do it. Verse 34. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night, before the cockle crows, you will disown me three times. So Jesus is faithful like no one else. Of course, it's not that no one is ever faithful. Faithfulness, which is that beginning and then continuing of the same until it be thoroughly finished, as Francis Drake put it in his prayer. Faithfulness of all sorts is all around us. It's a wonderful thing. It's behind so many of the blessings that we have in this life. And today we're giving thanks for our mothers. It's a great picture of faithfulness to so many of us. But there is an end to even the greatest human faithfulness. I mean, I, I guess we don't really know. If we'd been in Peter's shoes, would it have played out differently? What we do know for sure is that for every single one of us, at some point, we will reach the end of our courage. At some point, we will run out of willpower. At some point, our principled stand is going to end at some point, we can't do it anymore. And we too will, as it were, fall away. Perhaps you've experienced that in your life, you know, in a very public and painful way. Perhaps, like me, you, you, know, you find yourself daily wrestling with these great intentions, and then it never quite materializes. The point is, whether it's obvious or not that obvious, for all of us, one day, we just won't deliver. Now, let's be honest, a future that depended just on us, therefore, would not be that great. But that's not the Christian perspective. There is someone who is faithful like no one else. There is one who has actually seen the end from the beginning, and he has walked resolutely and, and clearly and purposely through it, always delivering. And ultimately, all our days depend on his faithfulness. Isn't that wonderful? You know, if you're struggling with just 
life falling apart right now. You've made a mess of it. The Lord Jesus, you are his. If you're trusting in him, and his faithfulness never fails. Jesus is faithful like no one else. He's faithful like no one else. Second, he's watchful like no one else. So the scene moves to Gethsemane. Uh, it's probably an olive grove on the, on the western slope of the Mount of Olives in, uh, on the eastern part of Jerusalem. And Jesus says uh, to his disciples, verse 36, sit here while I go over there and pray. And here we are reminded for, for all Jesus' uniqueness, he's, he's a unique human being. His complete humanity comes through here. Verse 37, we see it there in his emotions. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Just a little aside, isn't that comforting to think when, when we come to those really difficult situations in our lives where we feel sorrowful and troubled and we start to pray? We are speaking to one who knows what that feels like. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So now, if the challenge to the disciples in the first bit was, you know, stay true to me, the challenge now is keep watch with me. Keep watch with me. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean, keep watch? Uh, well, I wonder if I can illustrate by counterexample from one of the very many times that I have got it wrong as a husband. Uh, it was at Imogen, our fourth child's birth. Uh, we'd got through three childbirths each occasion, not without its challenges, obviously, but um, you know, they'd, they'd basically gone, gone well. We'd come home with a baby that was well. Um, and so I, I, I was kind of approaching this fourth occasion with a little bit of a sort of internal swagger, if you know what I mean. And uh, I was packing up for, for, for the evening. I, I, I recalled how previously there had been a bit of a time delay between when we arrived at the hospital and, you know, it all sort of kicking off. And so I put my, my J pillow in um, and, and, and one of those face masks, you know, for, for flying in case I needed to get some shut-eye, you know, obviously to be ready for the, for the key moment. And uh, we got to Kingston Hospital, and we got shown to our, to our room. It's all very nice. We tried to get Emily reasonably comfortable. Obviously, I, you know, prioritized that. And then I sat down in the chair, and I began to don aforementioned mask. You can imagine what my wife's response was. What are you doing? I am in labor. I am about to go through the most arduous experience natural life affords, and you are donning a face mask. I need your support. I need you to stay here and keep watch with me, she might as well have said. That would have really got the preacher. It was not my finest hour. It was not my finest hour. I think that's the sense. The disciples that night were to be watchful, but they were not. They were not watchful. They were not present to the reality of what Jesus was doing and going through. They, they didn't get it. So Jesus is, is wrestling in spiritual agony. My father, he says, if it's possible, may this cup, he's talking about suffering, be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And they, they were asleep. Then he returned to his disciples, verse 40, and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, says Jesus. 
And then as we read on, you remember the pattern happens three times. And so there's a challenge here for us too, uh, to be watchful, for us to realize when there's actually a spiritual battle afoot. You know, perhaps you got into argument with your friend or your spouse or your business partner and, you know, for a moment in your head, all you can see is, I need to win. And then you need to actually realize, no, you need to not break your relationship. To be watchful is to recognize what the devil is doing in that moment. And it's not getting in the way. It's not, the problem is not that it's getting in the way of you winning your argument. Or uh, perhaps we need watchfulness in, in the way that we care for our children. Not letting the, the days and, and the weeks and the months and the years pass by without sharing our faith with them because we're tired or busy or whatever. We, we need watchfulness so often when we're faced with difficult decisions. Watchfulness, not to just go and make whatever decision we want or feel at that time, but to think, ah, oh, perhaps there's a challenge here. There's a godly answer to here that actually is going to require me to ask the Lord and seek him. But the reality is, however watchful we are, one day our eyes too will glaze over in sleep. One day we will face a, a spiritual danger and we'll just miss it. We will be tempted, we'll give in. And again, here we take heart. We take heart that we know who we have with us. We have Jesus. We have Jesus who is supremely watchful. He he knows our deepest need, and he sees each of our situations with complete clarity. He knows what's going on, far beyond our own understanding. And he has guaranteed our spiritual future. We have Jesus who was and is watchful like no one else. Isn't it good to have him? So faithful, watchful, and that brings us to our third trait, suffering. He suffers like no one else. Verse 39. We had it already. My father, if it is possible, says Jesus, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The story of Jesus is uh, reaching its climax here. And as it does so, I guess we ask ever more the question, this burning question, why? Why? Particularly if, as all the accounts suggest, that Jesus knew what was lying before him, why did all this have to happen? Why didn't he just get out? Why not live to preach and heal another day or 30 years? And Jesus is wrestling with that question right here. He wrestles with it a number of times. He says, it says, he went away a second time and prayed, verse 42, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He's trying to work out, does this really have to happen? And yet we learn it does. It is the Father's will, it seems, for Jesus to suffer. It's God's plan. Now just think about that for the moment. If that is the case, if the God of all mercy and compassion, if that God wills for Jesus to suffer, it can only be because it is of the utmost necessity. If there were another way, surely he would, he would have taken that way. But there isn't. Because Jesus alone bears the wrath of God for us sinners. That, that's what this image of the cup is. If you read the Old Testament, we often find this image of the cup 
And it's like the cup has, has the liquid in the cup is, is the anger of God, the wrath of God. Not some kind of impetuous kind of um, sort of, you know, throwing the toys out the pram anger. But that settled opposition to everything that's wrong. And Jesus drinks it. He takes in himself all God's revulsion at sin so that we might not have to. Do you notice that great irony? Peter at the beginning with all the disciples, he says, verse 35, oh look, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And, and they all say the same. Do you notice that? Of course, what's the point? No, you don't have to die with him. That's the thing. You don't have to die with him. His suffering will save you. Jesus suffers like no one else. And I hope that as we, as we grasp, these are heavy moments, aren't they, in, in the Gospels. But as we grasp that, we, I hope we see the comfort as well. If we've put our, our trust in, in Christ, our wrongdoing, past, present, future, it's, it's already dealt with. He has already suffered for it. There is nothing more to give. If that's a completely new idea, or if you'd like to explore that more with me afterwards, I'd love to speak to you. Jesus suffers uniquely. And finally, and, and briefly, Jesus is powerful like no one else. The display of Jesus' power at the end of this, this passage is just extraordinary. They may have been wrong-footed, these disciples, but uh, when you know, Judas comes out and there's the threat of Jesus being a- a- arrested, at least one of them puts up a fight. So, Verse 51, with that, one of Jesus' companions, we're told, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, it's a kind of a noble, but let's be honest, it's also a bit of a tragic gesture, this this drawing of the sword. It's a great move of defiance. No, they don't want to get my Lord. But it's also a bit grotesque, isn't it? Let's be honest. By the way, why do you think the ear is there? The the ear detail is there because someone actually saw this happen. And that's why we have it written down. They didn't just make it up. But it also underlines, it's a bit of a pathetic moment. The human power of the disciples can't really do much. But listen to Jesus. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So Jesus' enemies are are increasingly encircling him. And he could at any moment, at any moment before, he could have just clicked his fingers and just ejected out of there. But his is a quiet, submissive power. One that is sticking to the ancient plan of God written in the scriptures. And he's going to hold it out all the way to the end. And so this is our predicament too. Our power, like those disciples, it's, it's small. Even, we've got some very illustrious people in this, in this congregation. Even the really strong ones, it's, it's small. And so often we find we can't change very much. But we can cast ourselves in hope on the, wor- on the one who holds all of our days. Who holds our eternity just in his hands. Who can call on 12 legions of angels. And what does that look like? You know, I think often what it looks like is putting our swords away. Do you understand what I mean by that? 
not trying in our power to manhandle a situation, but rather to trust him and commit ourselves to God. So there is Jesus, faithful, watchful, suffering, and powerful like no one else. So I hope we've seen the picture here. Every human pretender reaches their limits. You and I, the best bosses, the greatest of friends, the tightest of families, the most loving of churches, the godliest leaders, all reach their end. But Jesus doesn't. He is the one to trust and He's the one to throw our lot in with. His lane, the one that just has him at the head of it, that's the one to line up behind. So I want to leave you with one, I hope this is not too cheeky and irreverent at this moment, one little image. I got a screenshot from a friend this week. It was from a DPD delivery driver notification. And the DPD delivery driver's name was Jesus. Jesus will deliver your parcel at, you know, whatever. And he'd written the caption underneath, Jesus always delivers. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us this morning. Oh Lord, we thank you for our unique and unmatched Savior. Lord, deepen in us our love for him. Help us see how he is all the things that we would love to be but struggle to be. And that in him we therefore have everything we need. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon Podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.